Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 123. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And Dan, you're back. Oh, it's good to be back on the show. You nearly forgot the intro, didn't you? I did it. I've been off, like, what, a week now? And it feels like this is ancient history the last time I did a podcast. Well, the reason Dan was off was because he'd lost his voice, basically. So yeah. we couldn't have him on. You'd have to hold up signs, wouldn't you? Yeah, a bit like um, Love Actually or something. Yeah, or you could have had one of those uh, old, you know, computer synthesizers. Hello, I am Dan Wood. Yeah, that wouldn't get annoying, would it? <laughs> but it is good to be back. I did lose my voice last week. As you mentioned, a bit hard to do a podcast when you can't talk. You and Joe did well, though. Oh, yeah. I we started off a bit iffy, but we got there. Yeah, it was a good show. Well, it was a bit weird for me because for the first time in this show being, I was going to say on air, on the internet in like two and a half years, I actually sat at home and listened to it and didn't know what was coming up. I listened to the Retro Hour as a listener. Oh, wow. Were you excited? Yeah, well, it's a pretty good show, this, actually, if I if I do say so myself. Yeah. Well. I'm not allowed to say that because I wasn't on the episode, so. <laughs> well, we've got a pretty good guest for you today as well. Now, this is going to be incredible. I mean, you've pulled a big one out of the bag here, Ravi. Oh, definitely. You know, we've had Nolan Bushnell on and he's talked about the early stuff with Atari. Well, we're talking about Activision here, which came from Atari. And this is David Crane, the creator of Pitfall. Ghostbusters, tiny computer people, even the Simpsons games. Oh, Bart versus the Space Mutants, I remember that game very well. But as you mentioned there, Activision, I mean, they were the first third-party video game developer. Yeah, like, when David joined Atari, there were two games, Pong and Tank, that was it. And, you know, he helped doing a side-by-side scrolling kind of, um, you know really helped with innovating and doing the scores in the corners. Uh, you know, Tiny Computer People was like one of the first simulations. Well, it directly inspired The Sims, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and even stuff like the cartridge slot on the Atari 2600, innovations like that that really defined a whole industry, you know, all came from like the seeds of what these guys were doing at Atari and Activision back in the day. So it's going to be such an interesting one. I mean, we're going to really struggle to fit this all into an hour, but do stick around. Such an amazing interview. David Crane is going to be our special guest on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. Now, of course, we couldn't bring you amazing guests like David Crane. We couldn't do this show every single week. So you know, there's not many weekly retro gaming podcasts out there. No, and we're going to all these events. I'm going to Nova Demo Party as well. Uh, we're going to Play Expo. You're going to Retro Computer Me- Museum's uh, birthday, aren't Yeah, you? they're celebrating their 10th anniversary at the end of June. So yeah, in Leicester. We've got a busy summer coming up, I think it's fair to say. But thanks to you guys' support, we can get to these events. We can keep doing the podcast every week. And if you'd like to support the Retro Hour podcast, one way that you could do that, I mean, you know, can help us out in many ways. Tell your friends, leave reviews on iTunes, all that kind of thing all helps. Or if you'd like to make a contribution, into the running of the show everything we receive 100% of it all goes back into the running of the podcast and we appreciate every penny every cent every euro every dollar that we receive and you can make a donation really simply through our website using PayPal or cryptocurrency if that's your thing all you've got to do is head to theretrohour.com and you'll find those links on the front page and just for doing that you'll get the the greatest accolade in the world of retro gaming. The Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Doesn't get much more prestigious than that, does it? And this week, finding their place in the Hall of Fame, thanks for your donation, Robert Smith, Aaron Ostrander, Andrew Craig, and Christine Spaint. Who all made donations into the running of the podcast. You could do the same and find your name on a future episode. Just head to theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our interview with David Crane... We predicted this, I think pretty much everybody did, about a year ago. 
Mini N64. Oh, okay. What have they announced it? Or this is I'm getting excited now, Dan. Well, everyone thought that was going to come after the NES Mini came out, and then we had the SNES that came out last year, and they're actually going to be reintroducing the NES Mini they've announced at the back end of next month. So it's going to be in store shelves again at the end of June. But also, this is quite interesting. There have been a couple of patents that have been registered by Nintendo in Japan. And these kind of follow the pattern that they did with the NES and the SNES Mini. So the first one that they've done is actually um, trademark an image of the N64 controller. Okay. And it's kind of, if you look on this article here on uh, usgamer.net, if you scroll down a little bit, it is kind of a, a line drawing of the N64 controller. And this kind of follows the packaging of the previous two mini consoles they've done. Like the NES Classic Edition, if you look at the top, it's kind of got an outline of the classic NES D-pad mm, controller. Yeah. The SNES Mini one had the same. So it looks like this is designed for the box art of the N64 Mini. But also, a couple of weeks ago, um, Nintendo of Japan re-registered the trademark N64 which had ah, lapsed. Okay. So that all kind of suggests that they are going to release an N64 Mini as expected, which for me, I mean, there's been a lot of people talking about this on Reddit and forums and that kind of thing, because doing an N64 Mini, I think is going to be a lot more challenging than the previous two consoles. I think it's going to be challenging, but I also think it's really much more needed than the other two consoles, because if you've tried N64 emulation, it sucks. Yeah. And also, if you try and use the old N64 and the kind of output on there, you can't get that HD resolution. But there's also this old blur with there. So the I'm, anti-layers. I'm, yeah, I'd like to see how they're going to work with the HD and how they're actually going to change it to all work with these machines. And I think, yeah, it's definitely needed, especially if someone hacks it, which they're going to do, <laughs> and you can add in all the latest N64 stuff like, you know, they've got that Mario Maker on the N64. It's crazy. The, yeah, the homebrew kind of yeah. stuff. Well, the big thing about it is a technical challenge is that a lot of N64 games were made for four players. Yeah. So I can't imagine they're going to put four controllers in the box. No, no. Uh, yeah, maybe they're going to make some money with the additional controllers. Uh, do you think they'll have a rumble pack in them? Yeah, well, that's the thing, wasn't it? I mean, you could build all that into the controller now. I mean, I've got expansions, you know, that plug at the bottom of the N64. Some of them got switches on for memory and uh, yeah, rumble packs and stuff like that. So, again, I mean, it's all that kind of thing you've got to think about. And the biggest stumbling block that people have picked up on is the Rare catalogue because... The N64 had quite, I mean, it wasn't a huge third-party platform compared to, like, the PlayStation, for example. But Rare is obviously owned by Microsoft well, now. Yeah, Rare, Rare had some of the best titles, you know, Diddy Kong Racing, Banjo-Kazooie, yep. Donkey Kong 64. All of these titles that are kind of legendary with the N64. So what, do you think they're going to go more for, like, Pokemon Battle and that kind of stuff? Well, that's the thing. I mean, a lot of people have been saying you can't really do an N64 classic without having, for example, Goldeneye on there or Banjo-Kazooie or Conker's Bad Third Day. You know, Conker's Bad Third Day, that is a Microsoft-owned IP now. They own, you know, a lot of the rare titles are mm. completely owned by Microsoft now. And obviously, people have been saying that Microsoft have got that rare collection for the Xbox One. So will they want Nintendo having those titles too? But... They can't be earning that much but, money up But there. then there's also, like, you know, Majora's Mask and all yeah. the N64 stuff. They've got, like, oh, God, what was it, Star Fox and all of this. There's still a lot of titles that they can put on. I think maybe the titles that were more popular in Europe, I'm not sure, are the ones that were owned by Microsoft. The, one of the biggest games on the N64, the one that they're probably not going to be able to do, would be GoldenEye. Yeah. Because not only is, you know, that a rare title... 
but the license, I mean, you know, I imagine the <laughs> the license they got for making the James Bond game, you know, the, the, that licensing agreement must have expired years ago. So then you've got loads more legal challenges. That's going to go be through. like the first thing that everybody in England asks, though. Does he play Goldeneye? You know, things. I mean, that was that. That's going to be the problem of having these titles not included in the system. I think people are going to get a bit like, you know, where is it? But then you could put Perfect Dark in it, I guess, and that could kind of be maybe a substitute. But, but again, like you said, I mean, there are so many good games they could put on there. Stuff like you know, obviously Super Mario sixty four. Uh, Mario Kart 64, Donkey Kong 64. Yeah. <laughs> I think pretty much everything was called 64 on there. F-Zero X as well. That was an amazing game. And, you know, we did see stuff, um, you know, on the previous Nintendo consoles. Maybe they will put out some of the unreleased games. I always remember, I don't know if you remember really early on, when the, it was still called the Ultra 64, those early demos. And there was a game on there called uh, Kirby Bowl 64. Oh, I don't remember that. And that was amazing. It looked a really good demo. Never got released. I think there was a version, um, like Kirby's Dream Course or something. Came out later on the GameCube, kind of a development of that. But I've always wanted to play that N64 version of it. And it's, I don't think it's ever been leaked anywhere. So that would be, you know, some maybe nice little fan inclusions, you know, that little crowd pleasers would be good. But even now, you think back to the N64, that was essentially a Silicon Graphics workstation crammed into a little box, they can make that even smaller. Yeah. It's going to get the stage where the controller's bigger than the console, isn't it? <laughs> that's it. I, that's the thing as well. The controllers need to be pretty big with that because I remember they were chunky uh, and they felt nice, but um, I don't know if a tiny one would feel quite right with the three prongs as well. I'm sure Nintendo will do it properly, but, you know, the N64 Mini could be coming by the looks of it. We'll keep an eye on that, and, of course, you can keep updated with all of the stories on our website, theretrohour.com. And just while we're talking about our website as well, if you do visit there today, you may find a little link on the front page. I heard you and Joe talking about this last week. Um, I thought this was worth another mention because I thought this was really cool. This is kind of a kit that you can get with everything you need in there to essentially make your... Well, it's like a NES Mini, really, isn't it? It looks like an as mini. The thing is, the Raspberry Pi, you can emulate everything on it. And we, we put a link in where you can uh, download the images and uh, just flash them to your card. Of course, you have to own all the original images. Of course. Don't yeah. we all? Yeah. But um, this kit is fantastic. So the main problem that people have with Raspberry Pis is they, they use the wrong power supply. They use the wrong USB, uh, no, SD card slow SD card, it accesses it slowly. They don't use the updated free plus version That's of the Raspberry Pi, the new version, yeah, that you can overclock. Uh, so this kit has everything with it. It comes with a little case, even comes with heat sinks. So, you know, they're not going to warm up in that case and crash. Like, how many times have you installed stuff and had that little lightning thing in the corner? Oh, that little rainbow box that comes up. That yeah. means you're low on power. You're low on power, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's because people are using like mobile phone chargers and stuff like this. So this kit just sorts you out with everything you need and you can just download the image. And if you use our link on the site, you'll be supporting the podcast as well. Yeah, there's a little Amazon affiliate link there. And it said the V-Kits Raspberry Pi 3 Model 3B Plus at Retro Arcade Gaming Kit. And it even comes with two um, USB game pads as well that look like SNES controllers. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about those game pads, how amazingly good they are, but they, they do look very close to <laughs> Very, SNES very close. So. And it's only 79 quid for the whole kit as well. I mean, by the time you bought a Raspberry Pi in a case and that, you're talking about 40 quid but, anyway. But, but you, you know, it's, it's the free plus. That, yeah, that gives it the extra speed. You know, N64 emulation on my free, meh, free yeah. plus, it's all right, you know. Well, the, we mentioned this game, it's Graham Norgate, actually, who was one of our previous guests. He got in touch with you, didn't he, thinking, oh, that sounds quite good. Yeah, yeah, he he, he 
wants to do MAME, though. Something yeah. totally different. He wants to do the arcade classics, you know. But I was like, oh, check out the Neo Geo and the MSX and all of this. Because I've never played on them and playing on them. My God, the soundtracks are good. Retro Pi is fantastic. I've got that on a Raspberry Pi. And you can put, you know, MAME on there. You can do all the console emulation. It's, it's a fantastic little device. So if you want to help us out and um, support the show and also find out a bit more about that, we'll put the link at theretrohour.com. Now, a game that did get a load of hype last year and... We covered it on the show as well because it looked amazing. Was a new Mega Drive game called Proprium. Yeah, so I saw this and this looked absolutely insane. Like the the, the artwork from it. Because these guys have a really good background of kind of creating these titles, uh, all the people that were working on it. Yeah. And the, they had like side rain effects. They had like a beautiful soundtrack. Graphics that I'd kind of never seen on the Mega Drive other than demo groups yeah you know i've never seen a a running gameplay kind of graphic that impressive well we talked about it probably about a year ago on the show and i think it was around then in march 2017 um they started taking pre-orders for it and unfortunately um it kind of went a bit quiet after that now there was you know for several months originally they were saying the game was going to be out late 2017 that deadline came and went people didn't hear about it and a lot of people started, started to get a bit annoyed, as you would naturally. And as it turns out, I mean, the, the team behind it, they're called Watermelon. Um, there's a guy called Fonzie, who was their CEO, and he basically went completely dark. He wasn't responding to emails, he wasn't posting updates for a few months. Oh, that's not good. Exactly, it's never good, is it? But at the moment, there is, um, if you check out NintendoLife.com, uh, we've got a link in our show notes as well. Um, one of the guys who was, um, he's actually co-creator of it, Lewis Martins. He works at Ubisoft during the day, uh, but also he's been working on uh, Proprium as the main artist and art director as well. And he released a little statement saying that, you know, um, Fonzie, this guy who's kind of gone missing, is he's a good guy, but he's not very good at communication skills and transparencies. To be honest, like technicians and engineers and kind of CEOs and stuff, they're, they're not usually. It's usually the marketing people, isn't it? Well, he is saying, you know, a lot of people are getting frustrated about it, including himself. So he says, uh, you know, from what what he's hoping is, he wants a game to release as soon as possible. It's a bit out of his control and he's a bit upset about it as well. So essentially he's got the stage where it's kind of, you know, wait and see what happens. Um, but he agrees that the fans have been waiting far too long. So that's really the only update the fans have had. I mean, back in March, um, Watermelon's Facebook page was updated saying that the game is still in development you know that hoping it's going to come out soon but they are offering refunds to anyone who has backed the project or sent the money for a pre-order essentially and wants to get a refund off it so i think the main lesson that we've learned this with so many you know kickstarters and crowdfunders even stuff like this it wasn't a crowdfunder it was essentially people sending money via paypal for it is that you need to be in communication with the people who support your project yeah that's the thing uh if if you you feel you can't do it yourself, hire a marketing person to do it because you know it's going to bring your project down. And I thought this project was massively ambitious. Um, I I'm I'm glad that they're still trying to do it and everything. And you know there is other titles out there like Xeno uh, Crisis and Tanglewood, yeah. all guys that we've had on, and they're kind of also supporting, you know, the Genesis community with all these new games. It's a pity to see that happen but i mean they're saying as well there's some issues with paypal apparently you know getting the money through to them then there was a, a production issue with the cartridges have been saying so it sounds like there have been a few stumbling blocks along the way um i also it... think that there's a there's a need for these this uh kind of controversy 
People love it. Yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> they, they, they get like a tiny little bit of something and they'll be like, oh my God, it's going to die, the whole project. So in this age of the internet, you've got to take stuff with a pinch of salt, haven't you? Well, YouTubers need something to rant about. Yeah, on. yeah, that's it. How many videos have been made about this? Oh, I bet there's a few out <laughs> yeah. there. But again, it's like, it, I, I think it does look like a game that's worth waiting for. But, you know, lesson learned from the developers and the people behind it. Keep in touch with your audience, otherwise people are going to get angry. Yeah. Now, before we get into our interview with uh, David Crane, have you seen... The Xbox Duke controller remake. Uh, no, not the remake. It's back. Now, do you remember the original Duke controller that came out with the original I absolutely Xbox? loved the original Duke controller because I that was my first like proper online uh, game. I used to plug my headset into the bottom of that and... I could access all the online buttons. Do you remember the, the voice changer as well on the original Xbox? Yeah, right? yeah, and, awesome. I, and I'd play games like Full Spectrum Warrior and I'd pretend I was in Iraq going around with Black Hawk Down crew. And Halo, of, Halo 2? Yeah, most of the people would be teenagers <laughs> <laughs> or, or little kids. Like I'd be like, come on, squad, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... It's good that you mentioned that then because you're probably the only other person I've ever met who actually likes the Duke controller. Yeah, I no, well. I, every single person I've talked to loves to troll it and just hates the Duke controller. Well, it came out and then obviously not long after, Microsoft did replace it with a smaller slim controller, didn't they? It was kind of like you were holding a small dinner plate. <laughs> but it felt chunky in your hand, yeah. didn't it? And for, especially like FPS games, and I remember playing like stuff like Halo and well, stuff. Well, well, like that, that came, like, you know, they said there was a link between the um, Xbox and the Dreamcast. If you look at that controller and then you look at the original Duke. Yeah. There's not much of a change from that. Well, a company called Hyperkin, um, they've realised there is actually a bit of a following for the Duke controller, and they've re-released it as a USB pad that Hurrah! you can use on the Xbox One and Windows 10 PCs. Oh, Windows 10 as well. That is cool. Now, there's a few things about it. It's a couple of slight differences, but if you look at it, it looks very similar. It's got the same um, analogue sticks, you know, the concave like the original, the D-pad's the same. A couple of the buttons are different. For example, the old, I think it was start and pause had before, now it's kind of the Xbox One, you know, select button and... That's epic. Change. I'm going to get one of these and play GTA Five, And that's got shoulder buttons on it as well. Oh, cool. You put those in, but they've still got the, um, you know, the kind of silver and black button that they had on there too. One of the cool things, though, and, you, you know, talking about the Dreamcast legacy, because there is, you know, a lot of people do think that it was kind of based on the Dreamcast controller originally the duke was meant to have a screen in the center where the xbox logo is so in this new version it's actually got an oled display in there oh cool that's really cool because the dreamcast had the uh, vmus didn't they the little visual unit yeah i'm not sure if that will relate to the game or just like spin around looking nice well at the moment the only thing it does you turn on the controller by pressing in the center but it shows the original Xbox boot up, you know, the little like flashing the lightning oh, coming cool. down. So that's yeah. on that little startup animation. I'm well excited about this. I don't know if the listeners are, but yeah. <laughs> well, it's got a 3.5 millimeter headset jack, so you can do Xbox Live today on it, the new one. Um, and it's $70. Yeah, it's not cheap, no. but if you're a fanboy of it, I mean, they reckon there's only going to be a limited run of these and they've all got their own individual But then you know I buy Xbox One controllers at the moment, wireless, even for playing my retro games and they're pretty expensive, so you know. Well, that's one thing about this, it's not wireless, it is USB only, but you've got like a seven foot cable apparently with it, so. (laughs) That's just the old school experience, isn't it? Exactly, I think it's awesome. I've been looking around, I think, you know, I think from the stop retro sell them, so I was like, ooh. It's just good for your uh, mate to trip over, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you get annoyed, they don't throw it at your TV. Your your TV will come off worse. 
Right, well, thank you for checking out this week's news stories. There will be more in next week's podcast that will be out, of course, on Friday, as usual. And if you want to find out more about any of the stories that we've talked about, we do put the full links, you know, and get the full stories in our show notes at theretrohour.com. You haven't got to Google around or search. You know, we do all the hard work for you. It's all there for you. And if you'd like to leave a little review, that's always appreciated too. Because I know loads of people listen on different services, don't they? And if we get like a, you know, even a four, should we say four star or above rating? Oh yeah, it's great. And also keep your eye out in the uh, national press soon. You may, you may be seeing some stuff about us. There's a little teaser. Yeah. We'll have another little article coming up soon. We'll do share that on our, on our social media networks. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we do post throughout the week. So you can get all those links on our website, theretrohour.com. Right then, let's get the story of one of the most famous video games companies of all time. In fact, a few of them. Atari, Activision, the story of games like Pitfall, Ghostbusters, Tiny Computer People. Let's talk to this week's special guest, David Crane. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time to welcome this week's very special guest. Thank you for joining us, David Crane. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Before we get into you know, Activision and some of those incredible games that you worked on over the years, just to kind of set things up a little bit, I mean, it would be quite nice to find out where it all began for you. Do you remember your first experience with a computer or games where it all started for you? Well, you have to understand that um, I was born pretty much before computers were household uh, products. I learned how to do digital electronics when I was a teenager. Um, that was all very new as well. Of course, IBM had been around for a while with, with computers. And my first experience with a real computer would have been with an IBM computer that my Boy Scout Scoutmaster worked in the data processing center at a company and um, <clears throat> one of the merit badges that I uh, earned as a Boy Scout was the computer merit badge where I worked with them and actually used a computer for the first time. Were you quite inquisitive about technology then? I mean, were you one of these kids that kind of took everything apart to see how it worked and that kind of thing? I absolutely did. Probably the first major task that I did is uh, I received an old used black and white television set, like like a 13-inch television set for my personal use. And I put it in a cabinet in my bedroom and tore it apart and wired the channel-changing equipment to be closer to my bed so I could literally lie in bed and change the channel. Uh, TV remote controls didn't exist, so I had to do that with wires. But yeah, I would tear apart things and um, see what I could make them do. Those LCRTs packed quite a punch as well, didn't they, if you touched them in the wrong place? They did. So what got you interested in gaming then? Well, gaming is is kind of a logical pursuit, you know, game theory. And um, we all played games as a kid. We played board games and that sort of thing. And I just had a natural grasp for how games worked and how the rules worked in games. I was always the kid among the group who was reading the inside box cover with the instructions and explaining to people how the game worked. And um, that led pretty naturally into game design because if you had a board game that uh, required four players and you only had three groups, you know, three people there at a time, two friends, we had to figure out how to modify the rules so that it could work for three players instead of four. And I found that a very natural thing. I would be the guy who rewrote the rules as necessary to make it work. Because I heard you even designed a chess game at college just for a presentation. 
I did. Um, I actually started playing tic-tac-toe, which you know as knots and crosses. Mm -hmm. um, when I was, I think, 12 years old, I built an automatic tic-tac-toe playing computer for a science fair. Unfortunately, it actually went up in smoke the night before I took it to the science fair, but uh, it had actually functioned and, and could it was unbeatable playing the game. In college, I then took that same logic that I designed for playing tic-tac-toe and I had a project where we randomly selected a bunch of people. I was the project leader of a group of six, and we chose to make a tic-tac-toe playing computer using the electronics of the day. And um, right about the same time, I uh, had a speech class. And the speech class final was to give a speech using a visual aid, a prop because that's a little different, you know, holding up something and explaining it in a speech. And yes, on a sunny night before I went on on Monday morning, I still hadn't decided what I was going to use as a prop and what I was going to do for my speech. And I was sitting at my desk staring at a piece of polar graph paper, which is a bunch of circular lines, and started coloring them in in checkerboards and squares. And I was looking at that and saying, this, this kind of looks like a round chessboard. And in about two hours, I colored them all in, made a chessboard out of it, uh, glued it to a board so that I could carry it and use it as a prop, and designed a three-player chess game with all the rules. And my speech ended with, and if anybody would like to uh, play a game of three-player chess, I'll be sitting over in the corner when I'm done. And it worked really well. <laughs> well, after college, you went to National Semiconductor, and you also built your own uh, computer there, didn't you? I did. Again, the you know, computers were pretty rare. This was 1975, and microprocessors were all very new, and National Semiconductor had a microprocessor they called the SCAMP, S-C-slash-M-P, an 8-bit microprocessor. And since I could get one of those for free by just going over to the, the cabinet where they stored them, I took one of those and wired it up and made a computer, ostensibly to help me with my work. I was working on an analog-to-digital converter, and I needed to figure out how to test the products as they came off the line. And so I designed a computer that did that. While I was doing it, I turned it into a word processor as well. I was basically doing things with computers and microprocessors that my boss didn't understand, which kind of explained why I wasn't long for that job. I was there for only a couple of years before moving on to Atari. Well, you know, Atari obviously were the, the biggest thing in the early days of video games. How did you get the job at Atari then, and what interested you about Atari? That was interesting. I mean, I, I had actually been following the creation of video games uh, before I went to Atari. I attended what is probably the first video game conference ever. It was called Gametronics in 1976 in Silicon Valley. It was basically companies that made switches and buttons and other things trying to expand their market and saying, hey, we, you can use our switches and buttons in products you make for the video games, which were just coming out in the arcade. Um, so, you know, I, I was definitely involved and interested in the video game business at that point. But um, what actually happened was I, I was a tournament tennis player all my life, and um, I was in an apartment complex where we had tennis courts. So I would play every night after working at National Semiconductor. And Al Miller was my tennis doubles partner. He and I lived in the same apartment complex and played uh, tennis together. 
and he worked at Atari, as it turned out. And as as we had finished playing one evening, he handed me a sheet of paper and said, this is an ad that I just wrote for the local newspaper because we're expanding our video game department and looking for video game designers and programmers. And can you read this and just, you know, give me your feedback on the, whether I, I wrote it well, you know, proofread it. And I read it, and um, it was well-written and also kind of interesting and intriguing. And um, I had done microprocessor programming. I'd done building computers. <clears throat> I'd done game design in the past. I had an interest in video games. So all those things were kind of up my alley. <clears throat> and I just said, well, I'm mildly interested in this job. Why don't I come in and talk to your boss? And so uh, that night... I actually went back to National Semiconductor, and on the computer that I had built, I wrote up a resume, and I met with Al's boss at 10 a.m. the next morning, received a phone call at 2 p.m., getting a job offer at Atari, and so less than 24 hours from the time I was asked to proofread the ad, um, I was hired at Atari. Well, I hear you were really drawn <laughs> to um, the game Tank, rather than the, the, the title Pong, which was a, a massive title as well. What, what drew you to Tank, and why was it so interesting? Walking through arcades in those days, it was mostly pinball, but um, you know, arcade games, electronic arcade games, were starting to show up. There was Space War. Um, I saw one of the first ones of those in uh, an arcade in, I think, Santa Clara, California, and uh, that's where the tank game was as well. And I walked by it and I just stopped and looked at it. And with my training in electronics, my training in microprocessors, my training in gaming, I was able to look at that screen and just dissect it. I said, well, I, I see exactly what they're doing. And I think this is going to be big. This is going to be huge. Um, making, you know, an interactive you know, entertainment on a TV screen using little blips and bloops and and player characters and missile, missiles and shooting each other. And this is all going to be pretty cool. Um, I was there with a friend who was a pinball player as well. And actually, he was my foosball partner. I played professional foosball for a while. A lot of people don't know that. But um, anyway, I, um, you know, I started explaining to him how it worked and looked at me like, you know, how do you know this? You've never been involved in this, but it was just so natural for me that, um, you know, it's just clearly it was it was something that I, I needed to do. Well, the arcades were massive, but obviously Atari really came into its own when it entered the home. What was the kind of initial thought behind the Atari VCS? And I mean, I imagine staying cheap and having qualities that other systems didn't have at the time really helped it as well, such as the cartridge slot, I know, was um, quite an innovation. Well, yeah, the, um, you know, Atari really took off in the arcades home the home version came later but when when everyone says pong you know that was one of the first successful arcade games everybody knows the story of uh, the first pong game that was put out for test market you know a couple days go by and they get a phone call that hey the machine is broken and he, uh, al alcorn went to look at it and it was broken because it was so full of quarters it wouldn't take any more um so it was really you know arcade games were you know atari's big claim to fame to begin with and, um, but, you know, they also came to realize that um, everybody has a TV in their home. And if you can hook up a similar type of thing to the home television, you can, you know, give them the same experiences. 
So in essence, what Atari set out to do is to create a home version of their most popular arcade games. And um, the couple engineers got together and started working on how to make this, and they ended up creating the Atari VCS. And yes, it had a card slot, but you know, the cartridge slot, but actually the primary reason for there to be a cartridge slot was so that the game unit could play tank and pong. You know, it was really designed to be, the hardware was very rudimentary. It was designed pretty much to do a game like tank that had two small tanks rolling around the screen, shooting two missiles, one at each other. Um, and then they added what they called a ball object for paddle type games. So the tanks would be the paddles and the ball object would be the ball that bounces around. Um, so again, the design was really very simplistic because their primary goal was let's make a, a game system where we can sell cartridges for it. But primarily the, the capability of the machine was going to be to make tank and pong. So they made the combat cartridge, which came out with the machine, and they also made one they ended up calling Video Olympics because it had lots of different versions of Pong in it. And it wasn't until people in my design group, the people designed or in charged with making new games for this system, we started to experiment with the hardware and figured out new and different ways to make it make video games. Um, you know, they, they had a pretty good idea that, yeah, we're going to do Tank and Pong and we should be able to do a few more. But um, it turned out that the hardware was unintentionally so versatile that we were able to make hundreds and ultimately thousands of different games that worked on the Atari VCS. Well, with the, uh, you know, like we said, the addition of the cartridge slot and also the powerful hardware that was in there, third-party development came along, which never existed before. I, I read that you guys you know, actually wanted to be, to have Atari kind of treat you like record labels treated their musicians and, you know, there'd be royalties involved. And Activision obviously came out of all of that. What was kind of the story there? Well, to begin with, you know, Atari was at one point a very fun place to work. But um, by the time we were, you know, about to found Activision, it wasn't so much fun anymore. Um, Nolan had sold the company to Warner Communications. They had kind of shoved him out. He wasn't there for day-to-day -day operations anymore. Uh, and he was a fun guy to work with. And that wasn't happening anymore. Um, they were you know, a big corporation, so they were making it into a big corporate entity. And a lot of the people in the uh, creative side and the engineering side came to realize that corporation really didn't understand creativity and, and innovation. Um, so it was kind of a deteriorating work environment in the first place. And yes, the other thing was Atari, as with that big corporate image, really didn't want anyone to know where these products were coming from. I mean, they were creative products being created by people in their design lab, but, um, you know, they, they decided to just treat it as a corporate product it's a you know a product of the corporation not a product of an individual mm -hmm. and yet you know the four of us who ended up founding activision you know we're turning out hit products and generating tens of millions of dollars i think um the four of us were responsible for about 60 million dollars worth of atari sales in a single year and um 
of that, we were getting paid $25,000 a year salaries. And um, so, yeah, we, we said, wait, there's, there's, there's something here. If you can be really creative at this, you can be very successful. And you can also get recognition for work well done, more like the author of a book than necessarily a record label. And so we said, you know, we ought to, we ought to see if we can do this on our own and ended up um, starting to figure out how we were going to create a company to do this. And then as it turns out, we got introduced to Jim Levy, who was a former record company executive. So he understood promoting uh, the designer, promoting a creative product. And so while we were just looking really for recognition of um, work, work as an author, um, he ended up promoting us a little heavy, more heavily than that, and that was fine. We didn't set out to become rock stars, and you know, nor were we really ever treated that way. But he used you know techniques similar to the record business to do that. Now, Activision itself was a bigger deal than just that, because as you mentioned, there was no third-party video game development at the time. Atari made games for the Atari machine. And Mattel made games for the Intellivision, their machine. ColecoVision did the same thing for, or Coleco did the same thing for the ColecoVision, etc. Um, Activision was the first third-party developer and publisher of video game cartridges, and um, that's a pretty big deal. I mean, that's probably Activision's biggest contribution to the entire video game business. Um, a while back, I was at a speaking at a game developers conference, and I asked for a show of hands among the 600 people out in the audience. How many people worked for a third-party video game publisher? And it was practically every hand, uh, except for a couple guys from Sony over in the corner. Um, so yeah, the third-party development and publishing of video games, as I say, is probably Activision's biggest contribution to the video game business. Well, with you know, you four guys who made up so many of Atari's sales leaving and forming Activision, I mean, did that did it kind of cause a bit of a strained relationship between Atari and Activision? What were things like at first? Strained relationship? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, they tried to sue us out of business. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, it became very clear that um, all we did was walk out the door. We didn't take any technology. We didn't take any hardware. We didn't take any documentation. We um, had a very clean start. And the, the law is that it doesn't matter if you, you know, refined your skills at one company it's it's your skill set and you can take that skill set anywhere and start a new company if you want so yeah it was strained they uh they sued us there was actually a, a funny thing where at, at our first trade show ces atari bought a one-page ad in the uh trade show magazine that said we at atari uh don't believe that uh you know people should steal ideas and and start other companies and, you know, do all this kind of stuff and basically trying to scare away our, our uh, you know, reps and, and distributors and that sort of thing. But it was funny, if you read it, I remember when Jim Levy pulled it out and he said, I agree with everything they said because it's <laughs> absolutely true. Nobody believes in theft of trade secrets and that sort of thing. And we didn't do any of those things. But Atari tried some heavy-handed uh, um, approaches there with both a lawsuit and their advertising. That must have inspired you more than anything, though, to really make a success of it. Absolutely. I mean, we were a tiny little company in the third sub-basement of McCormick Place. But, you know, we, we uh, were pretty good at what we did. And we'd, we'd have people coming by, and they'd just been up at Atari's huge booth. And we came they came down to this little tiny booth in the corner with six games. And 
And people would universally just say, wow, these games are really good. Um, you know, why are your games so much better than Atari's? So, you know, getting that kind of response from, from the public was really good. I remember Gary Kitchen told me the first time he saw an Activision game in the store. Um, his reaction was kind of what you would expect from an Atari aficionado. He said, who is this upstart game called, or company called Activision? They're think, they, they think they can make games for the Atari? These games are going to be a piece of crap. And he went and bought them, and of course, you know, like our games were pretty good. And that changed his opinion. But, um, you know, we had that uphill battle to climb. I mean, people who liked playing their Atari video game, and in fact, many of those people used the term Atari as synonymous with video games. I mean, they were going home to play Atari, not Atari TM, but uh, Atari meaning I'm going to go play a video game. Well, some of the stuff that was implemented was great, like the um, six-digit score display. Um, that, how did that come around? And that was kind of used throughout nearly every Atari title, wasn't it? It was. Um, yeah, it's just it's figuring out some unique way to combine a program and the television interface adapter inside the 2600. We did that a dozen times, a hundred times. I mean, we were innovating every day because each time we made a new game, we had to make that game better than our last game just to get the attention that we needed for this small upstart company to be able to sell their games. And uh, the six digit score was just one of those. I think, if you look at the really early games at Atari, you're going to see combat and air-sea battle, for example. Um, the technological advancement from combat to air-sea battle is right up there on the screen. There are really only two tanks, and each one has a missile. But when with air-sea battle, the, the gun at the bottom of the screen is the tank. There's two of those. And, you know, one for player one and one for player two. But by reusing those tank objects vertically on the screen, which is something we were able to do, Larry Kaplan was able to make, um, you know, maybe six or eight bands of airplanes that you could shoot at. And that was one of the first, you know, advancement techniques in how to make a, a game on the 2600. Or Atari decided, hey, wait a minute, we've got to make a chess game. And um, Larry Wagner started working on the chess game, but couldn't display it. How do you display all those chess players uh, when all you've got is two tanks? And Bob Whitehead then figured out a different way to use that object multiple times on the screen. And you look at that chess display, that was another major advance in, in how you make a display on the 2600. That was another one of those things where when the chip designer walked through the lab and he was just shaking his head. He said, I had no idea that this chip could do this. And uh, we were figuring out all these different ways. The six-digit score kernel is probably the most complex of all those because of how much data it gets on the screen. Early Atari games had uh, large blocky scores. If you look at combat up in the top left and top right, there are two-digit displays showing the person's points. And they are huge and low-resolution and um, that was the best the Atari could do until we figured out the kinds of things like the six-digit score kernel. Um, I, I did that at Activision, um, and I actually met the Imagic programmers. That was the second group to leave Atari um, and form Imagic. 
ran into them in a mall in Sunnyvale. And one of the guys admitted to me that they're now using the six-digit score kernel. And they got it by buying a, a, a game of Dragster and basically taking the code out of it rather than trying to figure out how it worked. Um, but you're right. It, uh, that was so useful that it ended up um, in virtually every game ever since. Well, in 1982, um, one of the biggest Activision and, you know, biggest titles on the Atari 2600 was released. Um, I think it sold four million copies. And that was Pitfall. So where did the idea of Pitfall come from? And um, how did you go about creating that game? Well, you know, every time we finish a game, we have to sit around and figure out what, what's our next game going to be. And uh, where the ideas come from is always a mystery. You kind of draw from you know, things you see, things you do, and whatever. Um, but my primary goal for a couple of years prior to that point was I was trying to create a little running man that looked human. Um, it's pretty easy to make a thing that looks like a tank, a uh, thing that looks like a jet plane in, in eight, bit, 8 pixels, which is all we really had to work with. Um, and I was working on trying to make this little running man who looked you know, human enough to put in a game. And I actually did it um, two years before Pitfall. And I experimented with a cops and robbers game where you've got a cop chasing a robber. They're both these little running men and didn't come up with a game that was fun. I experimented a couple times trying to figure out how to put this little running man in a game. And I just finished whatever my last game was at the time. Maybe it was Laser Blast. I don't know. And I sat down and I said, well, you know, I'd just seen Indiana Jones and so an adventure in the jungle was kind of in my mind. And I just finally said, you know, I, I've tried several times. I'm not going to stop until I figure out how to put this little running man into a game. So I sat down with a blank sheet of paper and uh, drew my little stick figure on the page to represent my little running man. I said, okay, he's running. Where is he running? I drew a couple lines for a path. He's running on a path. Where is the path? I drew a couple trees. So he's running in a jungle. Um, why is he running? rolling logs, treasures, you know, enemies, scorpions, and just started, you know, brainstorming and figuring out what to do. And uh, in about 10 minutes, I had a piece of paper that said, all right, I've got this man, and he's going to be running through the jungle on a path, and figured out that when he ran off the right side of one screen, he was going to run on to the left side of another screen. And uh, just that idea right there, you know, made the idea very open-ended. I mean, it's great if you can run off the right side of one screen and run off run onto the left edge of a completely different screen. You could run out of the jungle. You could run into the city. You could run you know, onto a pier and jump into the water. I mean, there's any number of things that you could do. Of course, we're limited by 4,096 bytes in a ROM to do all that. But, um, yeah, so Pitfall is a basic idea. It only took 10 minutes to come up with a basic idea. It was in a jungle, really, because of Indiana Jones. But the concept of being able to create an open-ended world into which you can play a video game was really very powerful. So I knew as I was doing it, I was going to have to do it really well because it had so much potential, I didn't want to screw it up. Well, there's some, you know, technical, massive technical achievements in that game. For example, that kind of pioneered side-scrolling Um you know, platform games. How did you come up with that concept and how did you make it work on the Atari 2600? Well, as you say, it was, you know, one of the first side scrollers, although it's not scrolling, it is screen to screen. There's a little bit of a distinction there. 
you know, the Nintendo hardware could scroll. Mario scrolled the screen instead of page flipping. But um, there were a number of things. The first issue is, as I said, there were only 4,096 bytes. And that has to be every line of computer programming, every line of you know, logic, every pixel of art, every sound effect. Everything that's in the game has to fit in 4,096 bytes, which is, you know, roughly 2,000 instructions. And um, so getting, you know, a quality game out of a couple thousand instructions, less whatever you use for graphics is, is really a challenge. So the fact that the concept of a platform game was wonderful and really open-ended and had all this capability, uh, the reality was how many screens can you define? And um, so anyway, there was another innovation in there. I created a mathematical method of defining the screens in Pitfall so that rather than spending hundreds of bytes to define a screen and only having you know, five screens, I used a mathematical algorithm to help define the screen, and that let me generate 250-odd unique screens, one right after the other. Now, to make that work, um, I had to create a mathematical algorithm that would create the next screen, is in essence what happened. You ran off the right side of one screen. The algorithm generated the next screen before showing you on the left edge of that next screen. A complementary algorithm that could generate the previous screen so that when you run off the left edge of a screen and you're on the right edge of the previous screen, it regenerates the screen. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a technology in there that creates those screens algorithmically, which is a lot of fun. Well, all of the effort that you put into it really paid off. I mean, that was the top video game on the Billboard charts for more than a year. But then after that, I mean, you know, we go into 1983, the video games industry in North America suffered a major crash. What were you thinking around that time, and did that come as a surprise? Well, it certainly wasn't pleasant. Um, but in fact, we should have been able to see it coming. We actually almost did. I mentioned that we went to trade shows, CES. We actually went to two a year. We went one in January and one in June. We went to a CES and got the book that showed the companies that are distributing and are showing at the show. And there were 30 companies in there showing Atari video games that had not existed in the previous show six months before. And, you know, they were just throwing a bunch of money at it and trying to figure out how to do it without skilled programmers, without skilled game designers unfortunately. And we looked at some of the games that were coming out and we just said, you know, half these companies or maybe more are not going to be in business in a year. And we saw that. Um, but we didn't take that one step further and say, and when they all go out of business, it's going to cause a crash. Um, but I often have to point out that the crash is indirectly Activision's fault. I mean, we started the third party development uh, publishing industry we were very successful. There was a lot of money going around, um, you know, millions of Atari game players now buying games from other companies. And a lot of companies just said, I'm going to, um, I'm going to try to do what Activision did. And it ended up creating a glut product. And uh, so we had that crash in 1983. Well, after the crash, I mean, in 1984, Activision, you got into licensing big franchises. For example, I know you did the um, the video game for Ghostbusters, which at the time was a new movie. Obviously, that was such a phenomenon 
in the coming years after that. How did you get the license to make the Ghostbusters game and where did the ideas for the design come from? It's not unusual, um, even then, for companies with properties to go around to the video game companies and say, hey, why don't you make a game about you know Cabbage Patch dolls or whatever? And movies were kind of the same thing. But um, making a video game about a movie in the, the era was extremely challenging. When, when we uh, started looking at possibly doing a Ghostbusters video game, our, our licensing people had talked to their licensing people and knew that the license was available. And so um, Tom Lopez, who was the guy doing that, um, came into the lab one day and he said, I got a script for this movie. Uh, it uses a bunch of the Saturday Night Live guys, and it could be really funny. And um, you never know. I mean, you try to take a license before a movie comes out. You have no idea if it's going to be a flop or not. But uh, we all read the script and said, yeah, this looks pretty fun. But we were very late in the process. The movie was about to come out, or I don't know if it had come out yet, or it was really very close. And so it takes you know a year to make a game. And I said, you know, if we make a game today and that movie comes out, is anybody going to even remember the name Ghostbusters a year from now? Of course, we shouldn't have had to worry about that. I mean, obviously, it became a cult hit. But uh, with any property, you have to ask that question and worry about it. So nobody had taken the license. Um, we were probably the, the company's you know, first choice because of Activision's success. But, um, you know, the question is, do you take this license? And I basically stepped up and I said, you know, if, if it takes a year to make a game, I'd say no, let's not do this license. But I have a game that is two-thirds of the way done, and I could take that game and redesign it and retask it and put it in the Ghostbusters universe and, you know, share some of the interesting, the fun things they have, like the, the um, crossing the streams and whatever else, the capturing ghosts and traps and such. So I took a game which, its working title was Car Wars, which had a car, it had an in-game economy where you would buy weapons to put on the car and you would drive around and get from point A to point B, then arrive at places in the city and, and have a fight and whatever. And I turned the car into a top view of the ghost mobile. Um, I changed the items in the store from weapons to traps and ghost vacuum. Had to make up something, right? And uh, anyway, retasked the thing so that I was able to create a game in a reasonable period of time, and it came out, you know, while the game or the movie was still popular and was very successful. So I remember getting that game when the the real Ghostbusters cartoon started a couple of years later, and that you kind of answered quite a lot there because I did wonder why there was stuff like the ghost vacuum in the game that wasn't in the the movie and the the cartoon, for example, but. I guess that kind of makes sense. If I, I imagine you didn't see the movie until the game was pretty much almost done. Right. We had the script. Um, we always would have at least have the script so we know kind of what's going on. But, uh, yeah, we didn't have any imagery from the movie or whatever. And, um, you know, I just created that driving sequence where vacuuming up a ghost was something that you could do. Um, you know, it really wasn't – Whenever, you, in my theory, you don't make a movie game – um, just be the movie and make it interactive. 
basically to be successful, you need to create a game that would stand alone, whether it isn't tied into the movie license or not. So I would think of what, what would be fun to do if you're driving along and there's ghosts trying to maneuver over and suck them up in a vacuum was just a fun thing to do. And it just happened to be that it was the Ghostbusters car and they were ghosts, whereas they could have been you know, something else that you were vacuuming up. So really the, the theory is not look at the movie and try to take elements out of the movie and make them interact with each other as much as look at the universe that the movie is in and using some imagery from the movie, if you can, um, make a game that's fun to play. Um, you know, that's my theory, my philosophy of the best way to go about making a movie game. Well, a game that really interests me was Little Computer People, and it was one of the first kind of simulation games. Where did the idea for this come from? Little Computer People was an original concept by a non-video game guy. His name was Rich Gold, um, somewhere in L.A., and he decided he thought that a good idea would be to make what he called a pet person. And it was patterned after the pet rock of the 70s. And uh, he just wanted to do a con computer version of the pet person. And did a lot of creative work on it, did the original design, and managed to get raise some money and get some work done on putting the cutaway house. Um, and, um, you know, he, he was well along on making that project a reality, um, but he couldn't really commercialize it. So he ended up bringing it to Activision and it was shown to me. And, um, you know, I give a nod to Rich for his original creativity. Unfortunately, Rich has since, since passed away, but he, um, the, he was missing on a couple of things. And the, the biggest issue is the pet rock was a success because it took something that had no value, a rock. And by wrapping a great marketing story around it, um, turn it into something you could sell for value. So if you think about that, this is a product that has no value as the product, but its entire value is conceptual. It's just a piece of paper that tells a story. A video game is the opposite. A video game costs hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to create. And that's where the cost is. And it's not, um, you know, just taking something with no value and making it um, valuable by adding a story. So a video game, where he was, is it was, um, you know, it was basically going to lose his shirt, I think, on the whole deal. But what I saw is, as you say, I saw this is this could become, you know, the first simulator. And I had done experimentation with the whole idea of um, apparently intelligent things on the screen. It's kind of what we do whenever we do AI for your computer opponent. And I thought this this kind of puts it into the shape of a little person, a, a lovable little creature. Having, having seen the product that Rich brought in, I uh, went to the CEO, Jim Levy, and I said, look, this, this, this has some real potential. It's going to take a lot of work to, to make into a product. And I took it on and spent a full year turning it into a product that's interactive. I added um, you know, language parser so that you could talk to the guy and, and ask him to do things and uh, play games with him and that sort of thing. I, I was building a platform that I expected we could make, you know, dozens of games out of. 
you know, new versions of it. Um, so yeah, I, I put a lot of effort into it to make it into a true simulation. Unfortunately, um, it was not financially successful because it cost so much to basically pay all the people that um, had originally been working on you know, a lot of the, the work to, to own it free and clear it cost a lot of money. Plus, a year of my time was very expensive at that point. Um, so we, it, you know, the product made money. The product was critically acclaimed. It was very successful. We even had grandmothers who bought two Commodore 64s, two monitors, and two copies of Little Computer Person so that she could have her two grandchildren come over after school and each have their own pet. Um, so it was very successful in many ways. Unfortunately, it wasn't a financial success. So when I started thinking about, you know, do we do a sequel, uh, it never got done. Well, how do you feel about modern simulators and games like The Sims? Because I hear that uh, Will Wright actually mentioned this as an influence for The Sims. And there's so many different types of simulators at the moment. It's great. I mean, we all cross-fertilize. I mean, we all are influenced by the things that we've seen, things that we've played. And, um, you know, just figuring out a way to use a computer i.e. video game console, to entertain people is something that we all do. And I think Sims are a great uh, category. Um, there's hundreds of different ways you can use a computer to entertain yourself, and um, I love it. Well, in the early 90s, one of the biggest television shows was The Simpsons. Um, and when you were working for Absolute Entertainment, obviously you got the uh, license to do The Simpsons games. When did you first hear about The Simpsons? Did you enjoy the TV show and how did you get to do the game for it? Yeah, The Simpsons started out as a very edgy um, cartoon that was just a feature on The Tracy Ullman Show. And those characters were very dark, very edgy. Um, you know, they're much more mainstream now, even though they are. Um, you know, they're not what you'd call your, uh, your traditional family with traditional family values, but still they're much more mainstream. Mm -hmm. And the, the license was actually acquired by a claim and absolute and the development company Imagineering. Um, we were doing a lot of products for other companies as well, just to keep everybody busy, keep the lights on. Um, so we, we published our own games under the absolute label, but developed a bunch of games as Imagineering. And, um, I, I had a discussion with Gary Kitchen when, when this came up and a claim came to, you know, absolute Imagineering and said, we need to develop, uh, games, we want to develop games for the Simpsons license we have. And Gary and I actually looked at each other and said, you know, I've watched this Tracy Ullman feature and, the, the Simpsons property is one of those properties that's teetering on the edge. It could fall off either way. It could become very popular or it could become very cult and very dark. And uh, it's a risk. And we just kind of almost flipped a coin and said, all right, we're, we're willing to be involved in this property um, and hope that it goes the right direction. And, of course, it did. They, they stayed very edgy, but at least... You know, tried not to cross the line too many times. And I think the first Simpsons episode that I remember was they went to family counseling, and the family counsel counselor said uh, they set them up with uh, electrocution therapy and electroshock therapy, and they put electrical um, 
electrodes on each person and gave the button to a different member of the family <laughs> to try to make them understand that, you know, you can hurt that person by, you know, not liking their opinion or whatever. And of course, they ended up just shocking the heck out of each other. And so they, they crossed that line and they just, they hovered right around there, but it turned out it was very popular. So, so yeah, we did a bunch of the games, uh, the Simpsons games for acclaim, you know, as the publisher. Um, but we had a lot of fun with Simpsons. Because I remember, you know, I was a kid in the early 90s and like any any kid then and any boy, you, everyone wanted to be Bart Simpson. He was like the coolest thing in the world. And I did actually get Bart versus the Space Mutants for Christmas one year. And I loved that game. And, you know, even the concepts of like having to spray things purple. And it was a very tricky game, though. It the took, X-ray specs. Yeah, right? the X-ray specs that were in there as well. But I do remember, I mean, it was, it was quite a difficult platformer. I mean, did, was that kind of a conscious decision to make kids like play it for a long time? Or what was kind of the thinking there? You know... We hear this kind of thing all the time. I mean, I have people tell me that Pitfall was the hardest game they ever played, you know, and other people don't say that. So it's it's really a personal choice. What we do when we make a video game is we try to put as much playability in it as possible. Um, we don't intentionally try to make a game hard, um, but we do try to make it challenging. I mean, if it's too easy, why bother? So, yeah, there's a lot of tweaking that goes on in video games to make games that are challenging but not too hard. And, um, you know, you found it to be difficult, but if you, when you got through it, you got a, you know, a more valuable reward for getting through a difficult uh, gameplay experience. And you did, the uh, you did the design properly because every time I, I died, I'd always want another go at the game just, you know, see if I could get a little bit further. Well, then they, um, you know, the design was done well, if Absolutely. that's the case. Absolutely. Well, David, it's been a pleasure having you on this week, and thank you so much for sharing all your memories and stories. It's been so interesting to uh, hear the inside story of such legendary companies and games. So thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Hope it works out for you. <laughs>